Do you, Chris, take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? Do you promise to barrage her with obscure facts concerning comics, movies, TV shows, and toys? I do. And Cindy, do you take this man-child to be your lawfully wedded husband? Do you promise to humor him by engaging him in his obsessive ramblings, for better or worse, in pre-crisis or in post? Sure, why not? Then by the power invested in me by the High Father of the Fourth World, I now pronounce you Supermates. You may podcast with the bride. Hello and welcome to episode 49 of Supermates Husband and Wife Geekcast. I'm Chris. I'm Cindy. And today we are going to go back to Opal City for part four of our Starman Chronicle series. We have been, in case you have, this is your first episode, our first episode of the Starman Chronicles, we are covering the James Robinson, Tony Harris Starman series a few issues at a time. Story arcs at a time. Sto- well, yeah, more or less. I mean, there's some issues, like the last one, last episode we did was in between story arcs. Uh, but it's natural progression, natural yeah, yeah. Arc. Well, yeah, I mean, so we're doing three to five issues at a time. Anyway, right carry on. on. Yeah, I, well, I'm just, in case somebody, if somebody, this is, we're now on the Fire and Water Network, oh, so true. we might be, uh, there might be people listening to the show that hadn't listened to it before. Okay. So Well, we hope there are. Yes, we hope and there are. And welcome to our listenership. You'll yes. love us. So, uh, I will drop in the little canned... Starman explanation from, I think it was episode two of the Starman Chronicles. Mm. I'll drop that in. But uh, just in case... Oh, before before we get into this comics, the name Opal City, which was created by James Robinson for this series as Starman's base of operations from Ted Knight through his son Jack Knight in this series, Opal City has been name-dropped repeatedly on the Supergirl TV series. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's where Cat Grant's son, Adam, is said to be living. Right. So it makes me wonder if we won't see, eventually, some kind of... Connection. Connection. And based on the fact that Supergirl is very, you know, girl power oriented with, with Kara and Alex, if instead of seeing some version of Starman... We won't see Star Girl. Mm-hmm. That we won't see some version of Courtney, right? Because and also the bombshells connection now between the two of them, right? In the comic book which we covered last time, Ugh. yeah. <laughs> which we've gotten quite a bit of feedback on that. So far, nobody has raked us over the coals for being negative about it. Thank goodness, but. We can't all be uh, I, I mean, we, yeah, I know. I mean, I'm not. I don't regret. I mean, it is what it is. You know, if, I, if if you disagree with us, then you're entitled to that. But you know, we just told it like we read it. You know, so. But anyway, so Opal City has been mentioned on Supergirl, uh, and of course, there's going to be officially announced. There's going to be a Flash Supergirl crossover, crossover. in a Supergirl episode in March. So therefore, that might possibly link Opal City. Mm-hmm. To Flash, to Arrow, to Legends of uh, Tomorrow. Uh, you, you, <laughs> we never can remember the name of that show. I can't. I keep. I keep wanting to call it Guardians of Tomorrow, and I don't know why. Okay, I want to call it Legends of the DC Universe. That's what I want to call. It. Uh, yeah, I can't. I can't do it. It's officially DC's Legends of Tomorrow. I guess is the okay. title. Which I, you know, I know that uh, Shag mentioned this. I the first couple episodes of that. I mean, I liked it, but I didn't love it. 
But this last episode, this was I think it was episode three, is that right? I think, I think. I think it was episode three, maybe four, but the last one seemed to kind of gel together mm-hmm. better. And they gave Brandon Routh more to do, which right. was good. And he kind of helps kind of carry that series along if they give him something to do. And it just, the whole time you're watching, I was like, why isn't that guy Superman on here? Yeah. You know, instead of being the Adam, just let him play Superman and get it over with. But anyway, we're going way off topic. Oh, yeah. In the Golden Age, amateur astronomer Ted Knight developed a device that harnessed stellar energy. He used that device, eventually dubbed a cosmic rod, to battle crime in Opal City and beyond as Starman. Decades later, an aged Ted handed the mantle to his eldest son, David, who was murdered shortly thereafter. It then fell upon the youngest son, Jack Knight, to take up the rod and forge his own destiny as his own brand of Starman. So, as far as the Starman, before before we get into this one, this is actually the story arc called Sins of the Child, which is a sequel to the original storyline from through, yeah, was it issues zero through four, I think? I think. Uh, that were uh, Sins of the Father, mm-hmm. where... Ted Knight's old arch foe, the Mist, you know, set his reign of terror upon Opal City, and he set his kids loose, which were Kyle and Nash. Well, Kyle was a cold-blooded killer that ended up killing David Knight, Ted's oldest son, and in the climax of it, Jack Knight, who is our hero, Starman, takes up the mantle of Starman in that story, kills Kyle. Mm -hmm. And Nash, who had been this stuttering very sheltered, backwards person who actually let Jack Knight go when right. she had him at gunpoint. At the end, she's not stuttering, and she basically says, I'm going to get you. Yeah. And in our last few issues before these were going to cover, she has escaped from prison, and she has found her father's equipment in the secret uh, lair and has changed herself into the mist. Mm-hmm. So she has his mist powers. And she is going to, you know, she says, I'm going to, you know, basically, again, I'm going to, I'm going to give you such a big wet kiss or something crazy like it's that. Almost, almost kind of the exact opposite effect of her own Lazarus pit. Yeah. She was sane before, and then she went into the pit to become a mist yeah. and became insane. Yeah. Yeah. I but, mean, you know. Like she did, she did it on purpose to yes. become, yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So that's where we're, that's where we left off. We left off with her getting out of prison. So now we'll jump into Starman issue number 12, which was cover dated October 1995. On sale August 15th, 1995. The cover painting by Tony Harris shows Nash as the new mist. She's blasting Jack Knight, a.k.a. Starman, of course, with some kind of machine gun. in front. They're in front of an Art Deco building in Opal City. The mist is buck naked. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> And only the misty fog surrounding her covers are naughty bits and things. The building appears to have the uh, letters spelling Ellsworth across uh, the banner of the building. Uh, that's no doubt named after famed DC editor Whitney Ellsworth, who was also producer of the Superman Adventures of Superman TV series. So, uh, the story is entitled Jack's Day, the First Half, Sins of the Child, Part 1. And as usual, these Starman titles are four miles long. Uh, writer James Robinson, penciler Tony Harris, inker Wade Von Grawbadger, Von Grawbadger, yeah, it's like saying that, colorist Gregory Wright, letterer Bill Oakley, assistant editor Chuck Kim, editor Archie Goodwin.
day, at least as it starts. At 10 a.m. on this spring day, Jack Knight and his father Ted walk away from the Opal City Courthouse, where Jack has just been acquitted in any wrongdoing regarding the death of the original Myth's son, Kyle. Jack wonders if he deserved to get off so easily as he struggles with his lethal actions. Ted admits that perhaps the judge was lenient, but perhaps he understood the dire consequences of being a hero. Jack seems to make peace with the outcome and reaffirms his commitment to the Starman role and to Opal City. Elsewhere on the Knight Estate, Michael Thomas and Solomon Grundy enjoy the beautiful spring day. Elsewhere at 1109, scientist Cardiff Mayhew dies at the hands of Nash, who does not find what she was searching for in his home. Murder one. Meanwhile, Jack and Ted have returned to Ted's home. Jack discusses how a rival collectibles dealer is out to steal a potential acquisition from him. As father and son shoot pool, Ted realizes Jack's professional life is just as complicated as his science. Then, at 11.34, they notice Michael and Grundy are missing. Ted alerts the police with a call to Clarence O'Dare, and then Jack takes to the skies in search of his missing friends. He agrees to check in with his father at 2 o'clock. By 12.44, Nash has claimed another victim, pathologist Bill Delaney. This is murder three, and she still hasn't found what she seeks. Jack visits the carnival grounds where he found Michael, but he's not there. He returns to his apartment to call his father, but is distracted by a strange sight, and in his stupor, he is attacked. Sometime later, Jack struggles back to consciousness. He thinks of Julie Newmar, Hoagie Carmichael, and other random things. When he comes to, he notices he is in a strange bed and nude. Nash, clad in a robe and her underwear, greets him. She won't answer what she has done, but she does admit to abducting Michael and Grundy. She has brought Jack to the abandoned Fun Boy Toy Factory to test him, to see if he is worthy of the mantle of Starman, or if his successes thus far, including killing her brother Kyle, were just a fluke. Jack must move through the plant, going through the doors Nash has left open. He must defeat her aides, and with each group he defeats, he will find another article of clothing, and his cosmic rod. Key. Really? We're still going to do this? <laughs> his... His star staff, whatever, I don't know. His cosmic staff. She tells him she is no longer Nash. She will only answer to the mist now. With little choice, Jack begins his run through her gauntlet. He finds his boxer shorts and a large thug with a mallet. He uses his martial arts training to take out his foe, but cuts his side in the process. Then he finds his goggles, which luckily, and brilliantly I might add, contain some hidden lockpicks. He uses the picks to enter a room mist had not included in her itinerary. In the room where he hoped to find an exit or a window, all he finds is the janitor's chambers, including a chair, a phone, and a TV. He turns on the TV in the hopes he may find out what his demented enemy is up to. The news tells of six murders and an explosion at the top of the Chandler building. Jack calls his father, but the voice on the other end is not Ted Knight, and the man with the burning hand tells Jack that Ted is dead. Just then, the mist's hired goons enter. Uh, I do have to say, I forgot to put this in the notes, but when Ryan Daly and I discussed the Black Canary Starman team-ups 
uh, from Showcase, or what, were they from Brave and the Bold or Showcase? They were from the Brave and the Bold, sorry. They were from the Brave and the Bold. Uh, on the Murphy Anderson tribute episode he did on Flowers and Fishnets, I, ha I, I promised that I would bring this up because Gardner Fox repeatedly calls Ted Knight Starman the Rod Ranger. <laughs> oh, dear. I meant to put that as some kind of, you know, the Cape Crusader, the Dark Knight, the Man of Steel in this, in the, these notes, and I didn't do it. So there, Rod Ranger. There you go. Uh, <laughs> going back to the cover, you know, I've had this book since it came out, but I never really noticed how naked the mist is on the cover. I mean, you know, like we said, she's covered up, but I mean, she's like, you know, she's nude. Oh yeah. And and it and 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 there's more of her seen. You can see more of her. In, in Harris's painting style than you can in his pencils. Uh -huh. It's usually, you know, the pencils are more ethereal. This is like, he's completely naked and then he painted like white over top of her and just kind of wispy, which even though this book was never code approved, it still kind of surprises me they got away with that on a cover back in 1995, but, you know, they did. So how often do comic heroes go to court? You know? I know, you have, I mean, that <laughs> is... Yeah. <laughs> the Flash when he killed Zoom, you know? Right, yeah, and that drug out for, like, forever. So, yeah, but other than that, I mean, you know, you never, you know, the one time we knew of Batman going to court or is a version of Two-Face's origin where Batman's in the courtroom. Sometimes he is, sometimes he's not. not right. You know, usually they never they never go to court. and uh, So that was nice to see, you know. Because you know, it's really what would happen with vigilantes. Right, and Jack's ID is public, so it's not like he's hiding behind a mask right. or anything. Everybody knows who he is. Plus, the timeline, you know, it's been nearly a year since Kyle was killed. So it would probably take, you know, with legal oh, it would red take tape. That long, yeah. yeah, it would take several months to, to get go to court, which I, so I like that. Uh, you know, that's just another case of, of Robinson adding just enough realism Lism. to it to, mm -hmm. to make it feel. You know, like, and again, that then also that makes Opal City feel more real. You know, Jack asked Ted how many people he had to kill during his time as Starman, and Ted can't really say because there's the ragdoll story, which we talked about last time. Right. But he's not sure who killed him. You know, was it him? Was it Jay? Was it Alan uh, in the melee? Or did any of them really kill him? And, uh, you know, nowadays, though, I, you know, where the JSA is no longer set in World War II, although I, with this new DC reboot, there's supposedly a new JSA title, so who knows what they're going to do. The rumor oh. is they will be set in World War II again, but I almost guarantee nowadays that modern writers would... Oh, they wouldn't They, they wouldn't take that no-killing oath. During the wartime. Yeah. They'd say they did, like kind of like they have with Captain America now, right. they, which they kind of danced around that over the years. I mean, obviously there were comic book covers that showed Cap... You know, parachuting in with a machine gun. You right. Know. So, I mean, obviously, if he, unless he's just a really lousy shot, he killed somebody, yeah. you know. But, you know, it's it's even between in 20 years how it's changed the perception of the standard superhero. Right, right. You know. As an old school Super Friends guy, it took a bit for me to get used to nice Grundy. Yeah. In a pair of ripped off, ripped up coveralls, you know. But, I, you know, you get to the point, you just kind of, oh, this is a different... Version, you know, of version of Grundy. Grundy. I mean, that's the whole thing. You know, every time he comes back, his his personality is a little bit different. You know. Yeah, and, and of course, down the line, no spoilers. We'll they'll explore that more. Right, right. And I mean, it, it even you know that whole thing. Even it was on the Justice League where he was friends with Hot Girl, and mm -hmm. then, well, you know, yeah. so yeah, yeah, that's true. 
you know, as always, the scenes between Jack and Ted are very natural. Mm -hmm. uh, Jack learns Ted knew an artist that Jack idolizes, and Ted is genuinely interested in Jack's work, which is a big switch from him calling it junk in the early yeah. a junk dealer. And in fact, Jack calls it junk, and Ted's like, I didn't say junk, I said collectibles. And, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, obviously Ted is is gaining more re actual respect for his son mm -hmm. and what he does, you know. Something about that, though, that, you know, I thought it was a nice little bit where Jack's like, well, why didn't you tell me you knew so-and-so? And he's like, because I don't tell you about every little thing that goes on in my life. Right, yeah. You know, it just I thought that was a nice bit because, I mean, there's several times, you know, like, the kid, you know, we'll be talking to the kids, especially Andrew, and, you know, well, we'll be talking to each other, and we'll be like, oh, well, what about blah, blah, blah. Well, I didn't know you knew that. And I'm like, you know, you're, yeah. it's the perception that kids have of their parents as not knowing anything that they would be interested in. Right. And, you know, I thought that was a nice. And also that by a certain age, they know everything aspect of your life. They know everything you've done. They know everyone you know. Mm -hmm. They know uh, all your stories. They know all your stories, everything you did, and and you know here's you know and all and and with with you know all the the tricks they use to keep the JSA young and Ian Carcool mm -hmm. and all that stuff aside, Ted was still had to be an older man when Jack was born because right. Jackson is late twenties here, yeah. and Ted should be in his like eighties yeah. or, or late seventies at this point. You know, so, I mean, yeah, he had to be, you know, an older man when he, so he lived like a lifetime before Jack was ever even born. Right. So there's a silent panel that, where Michael surrounds Grundy with some kind of energy field uh -huh. and they never, we will see this again and we never really know what exactly it is. I don't know. At, at this point in the series, I kind of think it's just like, oh, look, pretty. Yeah. You know, it's it's just... nothing. It's, he's doing, he's doing something. Uh, it's something nice he's doing for Grundy. Yeah. It's not he's like trying to manipulate him or zap him or anything. It's no. he's 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 doing something to enhance his enjoyment of the day, the yeah. day or something. Yeah, but it's you know it's just it's just odd because they don't ever really explain it. So uh, we get murder one and three, but don't worry, that's not a goof. See, and I'll be honest, I was I was like, wait, I went back and flipped because it's been you know a long yeah. time since I've read it. And yeah. I'm like, wait a minute, and I flipped back through the comic to see if I'd missed something. I, I remembered the nature of the storyline. I, I assumed what would how they would take care of that, and they do take care of it that way. But yeah, it to a, somebody reading this cold to be like, wait a minute, what, what, where's two? You know? Yeah. So yeah, just wait. I'm not sure what Jack sees. Were you? I kind of think it was more. He, I mean, this was my take on it. He's just being absolved of of blame in Kyle's death. And he's like, okay, this is my mantle. I think he's just looking at the skyline of Opal. This is my city. This is, you know, hey, I am now the hero of this city. It might be. And I mean, that's the way I took it. It might be. It might just be like a really, you know, a, a certain sunrise. I mean, it's in the middle of the day, though. That's the only thing that's weird. But like a certain sunrise, sunset that you see that sticks in your mind. Right. Or, but you know it's it's uh, it's just a panel with the silhouetted cityscape in black, a yellow sky, and there's some random orange highlights, including little orange dots. And I don't really I don't know if it ever tells us if there's something more to that or it's exactly what you said. You know it's it, it tells us that he'll remember this site among other things. And I thought it best to just read straight from it. This is this is from the panel in the comic. 
There will be some sites that will stay with Jack forever. One will be the birth of a daughter, his second child, many years hence. Another will be a gift that David, his brother, brings from beyond the grave. A third will be the view of the sun from space as it rises from behind Callisto, Jupiter's largest moon. So there's some major foreshadowing, foreshadowing of some later plot lines, some of them toward the very, very end of the mm-hmm. series. Which, you know, that was really gutsy of Robinson in a way because nothing says he was going to get to 80 issues like right. he did, you know, but of course he did, but thank goodness because <laughs> we'd be like, what was he talking about, you know? So, you know, Jack thinks of uh, when he's knocked out and he's coming back too, Jack thinks of Julie Newmar's nude swimming scene in McKenna's Gold. And uh, that's the film which starred Gregory Peck that Newmar was filming during Batman's third season. It's why Eartha Kitt replaced her as Catwoman. And I had never seen this movie. So, you know, after reading this, I'm like, I have never seen that. I wonder what exactly he's talking about. So, of course, you know, you go to YouTube Mm -hmm. and that scene is out there, you know. And I was surprisingly, I mean, she's in the water, but it's like, yep, she's nude. (laughs) And apparently she was supposed to do it topless with a loincloth, but just decided to go completely nude. So... Yeah, she buck naked with a cheese sandwich. (laughs) Without the cheese sandwich. Oh, my. So, I mean, they don't linger on the the same bits that are covered up in the mist. But they're there, you know, if you very fleetingly. So, it's like in 1969, that was kind of surprising. So, it's all in the murky water. But, yeah, I can understand why you'd be thinking of that, you know. This is where you hit me. (laughs) You're not going to hit me? You're going to hit me later. She, it's Julie Newmark. It's a past, okay? It's pre-you. <laughs> okay. Feel uh, better now that you got hit? Yes. Uh, it's kind of like saying you're Hail Marys. If you're Catholic, you get hit by me and you get absolved uh, from being a pig. <laughs> I guess so. Harris gives us a giant crotch shot of Nash in her underwear. Uh-huh. I mean, it's like she's leaning it into the camera as you as we see her. Uh, I don't think he's being very subtle here. Mm. Uh, we won't go into anything, but yeah. Also, I gotta say, stellar wax job, whoever she goes to. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe she just dissolves it with her mist powers. <laughs> I don't know, but you know. Unsightly body. See, now, if that's true, if that's true, she could have marketed that. See, it's yeah. just like it's like all these stupid supervillains who have these super geniuses and 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 do stupid ignorant crap like Rob Banks and stuff when they can yeah. just sell their patents and you know it's the Lex Luthor thing. But uh, yeah, Nash is one sick little nut job. She is totally buying into this supervillain mm-hmm. persona. I mean, she. Just, I, I'm telling you, it's just I'm that I'm sticking to that. She entered a Lazarus pit of her own making to take her from sanity to insanity voluntarily. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of, I could see that, but I think she was, I think she was unbalanced to begin with. I know, but that was her final push. Plus, there was that whole, like we said, there's that weird relationship between her and Kyle that seems to be more than just brother and sister, which is just, (laughs) so, you know, the guy with the, Jack's attacked by a guy with a mallet. Uh, To me, he looks a bit like Crusher from the circus story. It's not supposed to be, but 
and I love Harris's art, but I, from it there, I thought, oh, Crusher, why has he got an eye patch? Yeah. You know, so I think he could have buried things up a little bit, but that's just a minor nibble. So Jack is more clever than he looks because he's got lock picks in his exactly. goggles. Exactly, like I said. Which, you know, which so. is nice, you know. But, you know, that could come from Jack's previous not exactly law-abiding lifestyle, too. <laughs> so right, He right. got into a lot of trouble when he was young, so... Uh, now, that is a cliffhanger. We think Ted's dead, mm-hmm. possibly. There's six murders, a building's blown up, and now Jack's surrounded. Well, and you think about it. You're 12 issues in, and that would be a logical point to hand the reins over to the newer generation. Get rid of Ted, Jack's in place. Right. You know, that would be it. You know, so it's... You bought into the theory that, hey, he really could be. Yeah, I mean, and, and given what they did to some of the other JSAers mm-hmm. in Zero Hour a year before, then, yeah, you yeah, know, I mean, I, you didn't take for granted that they were going to keep him around. Right. Yeah, so. Uh, this gets the storyline off to a great start. Robson does a great job of setting up several mysteries, and he gives us just enough to keep our interest. So, mm-hmm. so since our interest is kept, let's jump into Starman number 13, cover dated November 1995, on sale September 19th, 1995. On Harris's painted cover, we see a figure of Ted with a really cool-looking old-school ray gun. He is front and center. Behind him looms a large headshot of a man with a burning face and a cigarette. The Starman logo is, like, tilted, like, almost off the cover at a, like, a, what is that, like a 45-degree angle? Probably, yeah. (laughs) And, uh... It's very severe, the angle. And the masthead up top is taken up by an Underworld Unleashed crossover banner, which we'll get to yeah. at, the, at the end of this synopsis. Ted's Day, Sins of the Child Part 2, is actually by the same creative team as last time. So, this time we witness the day from Ted's perspective. It begins at the courthouse as last issue, but we follow Ted and Jack as Ted drives them to his home. They discuss Ted's favorite artist, Jackson Pollock, by the way. And we learn that Murder 2 was retired museum curator Sam Dooney. We spend more time with Michael and Grundy with the swamp creature lamenting why pretty things go away as he watches butterflies fly off. Then Jack and Ted notice their friends are missing and begin their search. When Jack doesn't call at 2 o'clock, Ted drives into the city and talks with Barry O'Dare at the Opal Police Department. Barry tells Ted of the mayhem loosed on the city. Now the new mist has started a crime wave similar to the one that claimed Ted's oldest son, David. Ted learns of the rumors that the mist brought in an out-of-town supervillain to add to the chaos. Their talk is interrupted by news of Mason O'Dare, Barry's brother, who has been injured in the line of duty. Ted leaves Barry to attend to his family and heads home. In the car, Ted hears of even more destruction and bloodshed. He knows it will be up to him to find Michael and Grundy. He thinks to himself, he's not that old after all. At 9.41, he enters his home to find an unexpected visitor, Dr. Phosphorus. The flaming man in a sharp suit tells Ted the mist sent him and then opens fire with a radioactive blast. The talkative assassin tells his prey of how, after accepting the mist assignment to kill the Elder Knight, Phosphorus gained improved powers from a mysterious benefactor. Ted evades his assailant through the house, into his lab, and briefly slows him down with the sprinkler system. As he follows Ted, Phosphorus pauses to answer the phone and tells Jack that his father is dead. Their chase ends in Ted's trophy room. Phosphorus manages to grab Ted with his fiery hand, burning his arm, but Ted fires back with a ray gun of his own design. It blasts the villain back into the room Ted was leading him to, the room where he has developed a coolant to aid in his experiments with cosmic energy. 
Head drops gallons of the coolant on his foe, dousing his powers, and then knocks him out. A tired Ted turns on his television to learn his old friend, artist Wilson May, is among the dead. The media asks the same question Ted asks himself, where is his son? Where is Starman? And why does God need a starship? Sorry. <laughs> you can tell we watched that a few times ago. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, okay, DC history lesson here, in case you didn't know. Underworld Unleashed was DC's annual crossover that year, 95. In it, DC's heretofore unseen version of Satan, called Neron, gave many villains a power upgrade in exchange for their souls. He even talked some heroes like Blue Devil into it. As crossovers go, it's pretty good, and it actually did goose some of the DC villains. Mark Wade actually wrote it, so of course it's worth a read. Uh, it only lasts two issues with lots of crossovers and a few specials. Issue number one came out the same month as this, this issue, so that's where Dr. Phosphorus got his upgrade and why, right. why he changed. So, I really like the cover. Ted brandishing a ray gun is cool. Uh, Phosphorus was unrecognizable to me as an old Batman reader, and I'm sure to many, you know, it's it's like some other flaming, you know, evil version of the Human Torch-looking guy or something. Uh, he used to have a white X-ray-like skull face and crazy fright wig hair. Um, he was naked except for a raggedy pair of Daisy Dukes. Okay. <laughs> there you go. With this issue, we now see how the rest of the storyline is going to play out. Filling in the blanks from the first issue. Uh-huh. Well, we, this is what happens here while this yeah, is going on. This is going on here, yeah. Uh, you get more great conversation with Jack and Ted. Again, proving that Jack doesn't know his old man like he thinks he does, which we mentioned. And Grundy mentions the green girl. That's Jade. Jade, Jade of course. Who sent Jack looking for him because she was too busy. And oddly enough, never pops up in this book, I don't think. See, I kept thinking that she would. I don't know. That might have been some kind of editorial thing because it's... At some point, I don't know if it's at this point, but at some point, she becomes Kyle Rayner's girlfriend. Right. And she's a supporting character in the Green Lantern series mm. at the time. I don't think it's at this point, because I think he dates Donna first. Doesn't he done date Donna Troy first? I believe. Yeah. I'm not sure which, you know. Yeah, he went, him and Nightwing went through all the chicks in the DC universe mm-hmm. in the 90s. They will play us. And oddly enough, if you took their masks off, it looked exactly the same. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, at least you know what their type is. Yeah, that's right. Phosphorus casually smoking in a 40s era looking suit is kind of a neat visual. It's it's unsettling. It's mm-hmm. it's better than his Daisy Dukes, that's for sure. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Dr. Phosphorus debuted as a Batman villain, of course, like we said, in Detective Comics number 469 from May 1977. He was created by Steve Englehart and Walt Simonson at the very beginning of Steve Englehart's uh, legendary run that would soon have Marshall Rogers as the artist. Mm. He made a few sporadic appearances in Batman comics up through the mid-80s, and then he just kind of disappeared. He was kind of replaced by a character called the Corrosive Man during the Alan Grant, Norm Brayfogle uh, run on Detective Comics, and he was the inspiration for Blight from Batman Beyond. Right. So, who was the big bad guy in Batman Beyond? He was the big bad. He was the big bad. Ted admits that he's scared at first, but once he adjusts, he knows he can take this guy, and I love that. He's, oh, yeah. He's still the hero. You know, he's got this, it's like, this This guy's, basically like, this guy's a chump. I got this. You yeah. Know? There are some cool items we see in Ted's trophy room armory. We see a prototype helmet from 1937, which seems a little early, but, you know, whatever. 
Uh, we see weapons used by villains like dentures worn by Dr. Fang, 1946, and pain glove worn by Mr. Fingers, 1941. And there are alternate Starman suits for different occasions, including a wetsuit of some kind. It's kind of like the old Kenner action figures of Batman. You know? <laughs> what gets me is, you know, he's got this whole trophy room set up, and he, he gives Jack shit for collecting stuff. Hello? Well, that's kind of like uh, he had that whole warehouse full of big trophies, That's remember? what I'm saying, yeah. you know? he. He's a collector all, you know, yeah. on his own. Well, that's what we said when we covered that. We said, you know, he, they, you know, Jack always says he's more like his mom. She's an artist. But um, I think he's, you know, I think he gets part of that from his dad. Mm -hmm. Ted does get burned. Um, the entire sequence with Ted and Phosphorus is in gray tones, except the orange glow of Phosphorus' skin and his energy blast. And then Ted's arm glows orange. Where he touched him, right? So we see that's kind of that was a neat visual. It's like as soon as he entered the house, it went into black and white. And I don't know if that was kind of a way to say it was it was a cool way to to show phosphorus's glowy orange and make it look dangerous. Mm -hmm. But it also was kind of like you know Ted has re-entered as the hero. So it it's like an old forty. That's cereal. what I took it as. Yeah, that's old, exactly what I was going to say. It's like you know that yeah. he's in an old a lost JSA. Serial. Episode, yeah. yeah, which would have been awesome. So, for some reason, of all the issues in this storyline, this is the one I remember the best. Uh, I think it's pretty much perfect. I always liked it when Ted got the spotlight, and this is one of the best spotlight issues he got. There's more to come, but this one, I, when I think of this storyline, I think about Ted. What he was doing. Fighting Dr. Phosphorus. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you got anything else on this one? No. Okay. Well, uh, we will jump into... Starman number 14, December 1995, on sale October 17, 1995. The cover painting, again, is by Tony Harris, of course. It shows small portraits of Matt and Clarence O'Dare and a large portrait of Jack, which is slightly misleading. We'll get into that in a minute. A nearly full figure of Hope O'Dare appears right before them. She looks like she's doing the right-on fist pump with her right hand and holding her gun in the other at her side. I mean, I like that cover, but the, I looked at it, and it's like, what is she really doing, you know? Well, my theory on that is, like, a lot of times if you're getting ready to do something, and you're, you can do this, you're like, yes, I can do it, and you, cl you clench your fist, and I can do this, not... Yeah, I, know, know. I, I, I can see it, but it just, it's, just a, it's just a little... I never really noticed it before, until The awkward angle is part of it, where yeah. it's, it's like that, the proportion is off. I don't know. I, I don't think it really is. I think it's just a very human proportion, and we're used to comic books. I can't make my hand do that. I cannot make my elbow do that and come in that tight to my body. Because she's got big boobs like I do. You can't make your <laughs> arm do that. Well, I'm serious. The I, way she's I got, got her arm, yeah. you can't physically do that if you have large breasts. Okay. <laughs> well, there you go. I didn't know we were going to go into that. Okay. Why are you turning red, honey? I don't know. <laughs> okay. So moving on. The story inside. <laughs> the Opal's Day, The O'Dare's Day, Sins of the Child, Part 3. This is a long one. Writer, James Robinson, Pencilers, Tony Harris, Tommy Lee Edwards, not Tommy Lee Jones, Stuart Eminen, which I never can say his right, name right, Stuart Eminen, Chris Sprouse, Andrew Robinson, Gary Erskine, and Amanda Connor. Anchors, Wade Von Graubadger and Gary Erskine. Colorist, Gregory Wright. Letterer, Bill Oakley. Assistant Editor, Chuck Kim. Editor, Archie Goodwin.
The day starts out well for Barry O'Dare. He's got a newly washed classic car and a hot date with a nurse named Claire with big breasts and a big smile. I bet you she can't do that with her elbow either. I bet you. <sighs> he leaves for work at 10.23 a.m. At 12.02, we check in with his older brother, Clarence, who takes in lunch with a fellow cop at a local diner. Clarence is excited by the hockey game he and his wife are planning on taking in that night. As they walk from the diner, they bump into two robberies in progress. The rest of the day goes downhill from there as Clarence attempts to stop multiple armed robberies as the hours tick by. At 3.15 p.m., Tony Florence, a citizen of the Opal, stares at a grand piano. It is all he has left of his beloved wife, who died in a plane crash. Now he is being forced to leave his burning apartment building, and the last vestige he held on to of his wife will be gone. It is like losing her all over again. He sees the firemen escort his screaming neighbor, Mrs. Lowe, out into the hall. She is begging them to go back for her pet bird, Henry. Tony hated that bird, but he realizes its importance to the lonely old woman. Tony eventually makes it out of the building and hands Henry to a grateful Mrs. Lowe. At 3.39 p.m., nurse Lucy Collins is murdered, despite her pleas, despite her panic over dying and leaving her infant son behind. The Mist murders her simply because she was an unfortunate witness to the murder of retired police commissioner Red Bailey, murder four. 8.36 p.m. Beat cop Mason O'Dare goes above and beyond and with acrobatic flair stops some of the Mist's men from taking hostages, although he suffers serious but non-fatal injuries. Barry O'Dare checks on him later but confesses to the doctor he's no daredevil like his younger brother or sister. At 9.24 Dirty cop Matt O'Dare has a change of heart thanks to another appearance by the spirit of Brian Savage, aka Scout Hunter. Rather than stand guard for a cocaine transaction, he chooses to stop it and interrupts the gangster's discussion of Stephen Sondheim's musicals with a hail of bullets. At 9.50, Barry witnesses the top of the Chandler building explode and despite his non-heroic nature, renders help. His sister, Hope, has heroism to spare as she chases a group of the Mist men across the rooftops of Opal. She nearly meets her maker, but instead meets the Shade, who rescues her from the last gunman. He has need of the entire O'Dare family. Is it, getting back to the cover, which we won't go into too much, cause, but is it false advertising to have Jack on this cover because he's not in this issue at all? Well, it's still his, his book. I know. I and know. he is off to the side. I know. I know. It's just, I think it's kind of funny, you know, but. Well, yeah. that's comic covers by and large are generally considered a bait and switch. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. I mean, you know, a yeah. lot of times they are. Yeah. So. Uh, I like the scene with Clarence and his partner. We see a little snippets of Clarence and his wife over the course of the series. And they have this really strong, solid relationship you just don't see in much of anything. Yeah. And I'd like to have seen more of them, actually, which is, you know, so I, I really like that. Uh, the little vignette with Tony Florence, who I don't think we ever see again. No, I don't think we do. Uh, is a nice human bit. It's very uplifting. Robinson and Harris, who drew this segment, paint a complete portrait of this guy in like four pages. Yeah. Uh, you really feel for him leaving that piano behind. He could have been bitter, but he went in for that bird, even though he called Mrs. Lowe an old bitch. Yeah. Because <laughs> she was always complaining about this and that. But he still went and did the, you know, yeah. right thing. On the other hand, the part oh. with the nurse is just heart-wrenching. It's just... Especially as a parent, because, yeah. you know, you find out that, you know, she was married to a Marine. Her yeah. husband got killed in action, and then her son is only six months old. And, and then, yeah, I just, ugh. Yeah, and you hate the mist that much more. Yes, it's like you just want to just 
choke her. The little yes. prick. You know, it's just, it's just, oh. Uh, Mason O'Dare is kind of nuts, but you have to admire him. You know, he's he's the most quiet of the O'Dares, as we'll see throughout the series. But he's definitely one of those action speaks louder than words types. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, he like jumps off the roof of a building, hits a, a canopy, and then as he's flying through the air, shoots at those guys. You know? Yeah. It's like, yeah. wow. <laughs> but you have to look, you know, think about Hope O'Dare. I mean, that flip she did over the rooftops was, you oh, know, yeah. Batgirl worthy. Yeah, oh, yeah. Especially red hair and all, you know? Yeah. You know, going, jumping back a little bit, Robinson likes to portray characters in a non-stereotypical light, and I appreciate that. But I have a hard time buying that an entire group of cocaine-processing gangsters would give two craps about Stephen Sondheim musicals. Like, mm -hmm. the whole group of them. Oh, yeah. The now, if there was one, one or two of them, of them yeah. I, I just, I think, and we'll get into this as this storyline goes on, but I, we'll, we'll save that for later. We'll save my next observation for later, but I just, I'm going to put... That was let's a, put pin, a pin, pin in it. Let's put a pin in it. It'll come back up later. Um, you sound like the agent from Bolt. I know, you keep saying that, but I, I, I do. That's the best way I can think. Let's, let's, let's come back to that. How's that? Let's okay. come back to that. I think Barry helped out with the Chandler explosion. The art by Tommy Lee Edwards in that segment is really hard to kind of. I, I couldn't. I mean, yeah. you knew what you knew what was going on, but not the particulars. Right. It was like, is this from bombshells? What's going on? Uh, oh, <laughs> I think that's going to be a running joke. Yeah. Um, speaking of art, Amanda Connor's art in the Hope O'Dare segment is almost unrecognizable to what she does nowadays. Uh, it's very '90s, almost image style, like very over-the-top extreme action, you know, it works, but it, and it's not bad, but it just, it doesn't, it, it, one, it doesn't look like her stuff now, and it also kind of seems out of place in Starman, but, you know, it's just me. Uh, it's a testament to the quality of this series and to the world that Robinson and Harris have built in 15 issues, counting number zero, that they could sustain an entire issue without one appearance by Jack or even Ted. Mm -hmm. I mean, neither one of them are in this. So, I mean, I was joking about it, but yeah, they, they pull it off, you know. you This is, uh, you know, and it fills in more gaps in the story, mm -hmm. so. Well, we'll take a break here, and when we come back, we'll cover the last two chapters of Sins of the Child. <laughs> Overheard on the Who's Who podcast, being said by the irredeemable Shag. For me, because you know she's a crazy hot raging woman, and now I can't not see that. But if you want more on her, check out the From Crisis to Crisis podcast, and also someone for the love of God started Will Payton blog, please. Um, just saying. All right, all right, Shag, you don't have to beg. Uh, well, that could be nice. Anyways, here you go, Shag, just for you. Monthly, the Starman Adventure Hour. Adventure, wait a minute. Uh, I like Starman and all, but I don't know if I can talk for an entire hour about Will Payton. Huh, I know. I'll include another great 80s character I love. Mark Shaw, Manhunter. The Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour. Available monthly on iTunes and at starman-manhunter.headspeaks.com. Also part of the Headcast Network. Come join the fun. Classics, she knows every line. Breakfast club pretty and 
Black Canary. I'll need a sparring partner. I'm Zatanna. Why do you care about some leggy dame in nylons? Or have I answered my own question? Black Canary and Zatanna, together in one podcast. I'm Ryan Daly, and I've got a thing for superheroes in fishnet stockings. That's why I started Power of Fishnets, a Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. Join me every two weeks as I celebrate the Blonde Bombshell and the Mistress of Magic in their exciting adventures published by DC Comics. Power of Fishnets. Available on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Okay, we're back, and uh, we're going to cover Starman number 15, January 1996, on sale November 21st, 1995. So now we're into 96 as far as cover dates. And that's actually kind of cool because, you know, January 96, 20 years, you know. That's when we got married, yep. Uh, Harris gives us a portrait of an anguished, screaming Michael Thomas. The jewel on his chest isn't even visible as shards of energy blast forth from it. Uh, the uh, story is... Now, this is... Do we say Michael as his name, period? Or when it's his alien name, do we say Mikhail, Mikhail? I'm going to say Michael. Yeah, I think that's for yeah. continuity. Yeah. Sake. Yeah. So it says... It's spelled in his alien, M-I-K-A-A-L. But, and sometimes it's that, and sometimes it's Michael. Like, you know, normal Michael. But Michael's day. But I think that speaks, though, as to, you know, Michael is when he is grounded with um, Ted Knight and Jack Knight. That's when he's grounded in that. Mm -hmm. And then Mikael, or Michael, M-I-K-A-A-L, is when he is having experiences from his past or using those powers. Well, it's kind of interesting. Of course, we're covering Starman, so I guess it, it was bound to happen anyway. But particularly, he is the cover feature and the main character in this issue. As we cover this, because by the time this one's out, this episode's out, I believe that there will be an episode of the Fire and Water podcast where Rob Kelly is covering first issue special number 12, which was the first appearance of Michael Thomas, Starman, and you and I are going to be on there with it. Oh yeah, I forgot you told me about that. But in a weird time travel kind of way, this will come out after, and we ha- but we haven't recorded it yet. Oh yeah. <laughs> Wibbly wobbly timey wimey. So, but anyway, so check that out if you haven't if you haven't listened to that yet. It'll probably have been out by a week or two by the time this comes out. But anyway, uh, so uh, Michael's Day, Sins of the Child, Part Four. Writer James Robinson, penciler Tony Harris, inker Wade Von Grawbadger, colorist Ted McEver. That's the difference. Letterer Bill Oakley, assistant editor Chuck Kim, editor Archie Goodwin. At eight forty four a.m., Michael Thomas looks out at the grounds of Ted Knight's estate. Ted Knight speaks to him as he prepares to leave for the courthouse, but of course, Michael can't respond back. He and Grundy spend the morning outside, even after Ted and Jack return. Michael uses his powers to envelop Grundy in some sort of energy field, and the lumbering man-monster is entranced. Their peaceful day is interrupted by the missed men who drug and abduct them. Michael realizes he is being taken, just like he was years before. Murder 5 occurs at 4.17 p.m. Noted artist Wilson May is dead, and the mist is once more denied what she is looking for. Michael regains consciousness and finds his assailants leering at him. Others of their group stomp and beat a drugged but conscious Grundy. He passes out again. 
His abductors shock him awake with water. The chief goon says Michael knew his father and punches the bound alien, green blood spurting everywhere. Grundy cries out for his blue friend but can't help him. According to the talkative masochist who has taken him, Grundy is full of weed killers, which are weakening his powerful plant-based body. The torturer introduces himself as Frankie Soul. His father, Louie, was a supervillain known as No Mercy who ran afoul of Michael during his days as Starman. In their battle, Louie was killed, so his son, of course, wants revenge. Of course. Of course. He introduces his goon squad, Sammy, Mars, Brody, and Geiger, who all take turns beating Grundy in front of Michael's dazed eyes. He passes out again. A gleeful Frankie is happy to see Michael awake once again. He then begins beating him. While he pontificates about their location in the top floor of the Chandler building, he segues into a discussion of Raymond Chandler's fictional detective, Philip Marlowe, and which actor was the best at portraying the character. All the while, he beats Michael to a green and bloody pulp while his men continue to stomp poor Grundy. Frankie leaves, claiming to be back to finish the job. He tells his men to do what they want with Grundy. Michael passes out once more. When he awakens, he finds Mars and Brody debating whether to burn or axe Grundy to death. They make a game of it as Mars runs off to get a fire axe, while Brody douses Grundy's near-lifeless body with alcohol. As Brody counts to 20, a desperate Michael strains to help his friend. When his countdown ends, Brody lights his lighter, and Michael screams in his alien tongue. His amulet explodes, as does the very top of the Chandler building. It's 9.50 p.m. This is one striking cover. How could you not buy this? you got a blue guy screaming with energy shards blasting everywhere. It's pretty awesome. Uh, it's, a, it's a standout one. We've seen Michael, like I said, put some kind of energy field on Grundy, but even in this issue, they don't tell you exactly <laughs> what he's mm -hmm. doing. The two-page spread where they are abducted is sudden and violent, and it's very kinetic, and you can just kind of feel the struggle between them. I mm -hmm. mean, it's like they're standing there, it's all peaceful, then the next moment they're just yeah. attacked. You know, they're on top of them, and it's a double-page spread. It's, it's really strong. Other than the brief interlude we get with the dead artist, this issue is all about Michael and Grundy, but my, you know, from Michael's lit literally yeah. from his perspective for the most part, uh, and it's that's kind of a, a nice break after last issue jumped everywhere. Frankie's soul is one sick sob. This issue is actually kind of hard to take to make it through because it's just so. I mean, they're just stomping Grundy and I mean, beating just... him, and just it's like. You know, and they've been portrayed in this series as very peaceful creatures. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's you really feel bad for them. You just keep, keep waiting for someone to do something. Yeah. You know. Now, Frankie having the discussion on Philip Marlowe, I can buy easier than the well, Sondheim. it's one guy. It's one guy, yeah. But here, again, there's another. Here's another one of those. And there'll be another one before we get to the end of this storyline. So just yeah. remember that. Put a uh, pin in it. Yeah, put a pin in it. They are going to burn or chop Grundy up alive. I, I mean, mean, you know, that's just wow, <laughs> sick. I mean, this is what what happens to to the little boys that pull the wings off of flies. They grow up to become men like this. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. This is Sid from Toy Story. Oh, uh, <laughs> you know what an ending. You know, this issue just builds to a fever pitch at the end, and then bam, you know, it literally yeah. explodes. Which we knew that building exploded. We just didn't know they were in it. So. There you go. Uh, so now we'll, you ready to wrap this up? Mm -hmm. You good? Okay. Starman number 16 was cover dated February 1996. On sale December 19th, 1995. A nude and smoking, literally, giant mist, which is odd, 
cuddles an apparently naked Jack and an old clown doll amid objects in the toy factory. She has a machine gun in her hand and a smile on her face. The painting, of course, is by Tony Harris. Jack's Day, the second half, Sins of the Child, Part 5, is by writer James Robinson, penciler Tony Harris, inker Wade Von Graal Badger, colorist Gregory Wright, letterer Bill Oakley, assistant editor Chuck Kim, and editor Archie Goodwin. Jack, clad only in his goggles and boxer shorts, is surrounded by missed armed men. He engages the would-be murderers using any tool or item he can get his hands on. As he battles them with hammers, crowbars, and other everyday objects, he thinks of how he seems to be watching all of this happen. In his body, but yet outside of it. Then his thoughts switch to the smell of blood, and Philco televisions, and transistor radios, and Robert Taylor and Diane Belmont. Then he realizes he's made it. He's through the gauntlet. And there's his jacket and his cosmic rod, the symbols of Star Man. As he reaches for them, the mist calls out to him. He has him at machine gun point. Jack believes she put him through all of this just to kill him. He is surprised to find out that he's wrong. She plans to let him go. She is not quite the mist yet, not as good as her father, and Jack isn't quite Starman yet either. She wants them to get better. Jack tells her he believes his father is dead thanks to her. She assures him he's not and tells him of Ted's victory over Dr. Phosphorus. Mist returns to her point. She will continue to improve, as will Jack. They will become better arch-foes for one another, and then one day, when they have both reached their potential, she will kill him. Jack makes her promise to keep his father out of it. She agrees. She then compares herself and Jack to Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn in Bringing Up Baby. Jack believes her analogy is flawed. He then tries to talk her out of her obsession with family destiny and get help. She reminds him that she has killed six people. She is unsure if Michael and Grundy are dead as the explosion in the Chandler building wasn't her doing. She explains her crime spree was for two reasons. One, money. Two, just to prove she could orchestrate such madness, just like her father. The murders were for a different reason. The men killed were all involved in the first meeting of Ted Knight and her father. After defeating the original Mist, Ted showed the Mist's secret lair to these now dead men. The Mist World War I medal was lost during that time. Mist planned to return it to her father. She has yet to find it despite her bloody search. As she prepares to leave, she tells Jack they are the same, which he refutes. She will be back to tangle with him in 11 months. She disappears in a cloud of mist. In the aftermath, the city begins to recover. Ted Knight returns to his lab. Clarence O'Dare returns to his loving wife. Matt O'Dare patches his bullet wound. Grundy and Michael are pulled alive, but injured, from the rubble of the Chandler building. The mist, in disguise, leaves town by train. Dr. Phosphorus sets in a special cell. Frankie Soul and his sidekick drive away. Barry, Hope, and Mason O'Dare meet with the Shade. Jack stands guard over them all. This is kind of a, well, no, this isn't kind of an odd cover. This is an odd cover. <laughs> I like it, but it's just kind of weird. There's a giant mist cuddling naked Jack. You know, it's just. I kind of think it's, when you think about it, the, the this whole story arc begins and ends with a naked mist. Yeah, yeah, that's true, yeah. So. That's part of it. Yeah, I mean, I like it a lot. It's a it's a very symbolic cover, and usually, if they're symbolic, they're not like characters interacting symbolically. Mm -hmm. So it's but we do see the rag doll in the corner, mm -hmm. which is you know bringing that back up again. Which I thought was cool, and it makes sense amongst all those toys. Oh yeah. Uh, Jack's fight takes a good chunk of the book, but as always, Robinson's narrative is going in an opposite direction to what we are seeing. He's got Jack thinking about Philco televisions and. 
and writers and and artists and actors and and things and Diane Belmont. That's a hint for an upcoming storyline. Mm-hmm. So that's nice because she's not a she's a fictional writer, not a real person. So uh, it works surprisingly well showing how in tune Robinson and Harris were at this point. Uh, the Jack Miss discussion takes up seventy five percent of the issue. Right. Uh, it's an oddly anticlimactic climax to this big storyline. But I think it works for this title. It wouldn't work for this, and then for this particular point in the comic as well. Right. I don't think this would have worked, say, another twelve issues ahead. It's right. This point in time that this works. Right. I mean, other comics have tried this, and it didn't, because Jack is not. You know, he is still to a point a reluctant superhero in some ways, mm-hmm. and. This is all new to him, and because he probably, he does feel guilty about, he knows that him killing her brother set her off. Mm-hmm. You know, whether he, you know, he did what he had to do, but it still resulted in her being nuts, or, you know, doing what she's doing, she might have already been nuts. I mean, it's one of those cases, you know, by, <laughs> Kyle wasn't smart like she she is. Right. And you think, you know, the whole point of this series and throughout it is, I think he's thinking, okay, everything she does is on me. I'm right. the one who turned her into this. Right. If he, you know, if he just apprehended Kyle and left him alive, she probably wouldn't have, you know, went became this. Right. You know. But you know, the, the, this kind of story, this kind of ending, works here. It doesn't work like Nightfall was. You know, all of Nightfall and Night Quest and Night's End and the last issue. It's basically Batman and Azrael kind of talking it out. They tussle a little bit. There's a lot of dialogue back and forth. And in that storyline, that didn't work. It failed. You needed to have Batman kick his ass. I mean, I know that was the point that he was too violent and everything. Batman still needed to hand him his ass. Well, it, sh- <laughs> it should have been one of those cases like when he took out Guy Gardner. Just boom, and you're done. Right, right. You know. Right. Something like that, yeah. But it works here. I know Robinson, this is this is me getting back to the point I was going to make. I know Robinson likes old movies and plays, but I don't think everyone in Opal would be that cultured. How many people do you encounter in your daily life that know a lot about old movies, musicals, things? I mean... I'm the wrong person to ask. Well, but I mean, yeah, but, th- but you know plenty of people who don't know anything about them. Well, that's true, but you also have to think... I mean... Well, I am too because, you know, I've got all sorts of friends, friends who, yeah. who know all sorts about, you know, they might be more genre-related old movies, but they can name off all these character actors from, you know, uh, universal horror movies and Hammer movies and things like right. that. And, and then, you know, and we know Rob, who's a freaking movie, Encyclopedia of movies. Yes, he which is. is true. I mean, I'm not saying those people don't exist, but I think, I think sometimes Robinson... Tries to give that characteristic to everyone within that community. Right, he's given his own voice to like everybody in Opal City is like, and a part of James Robinson, which is, you know, that's not a. I mean, it's his city, so you know. But it's like I think sometimes there's just, uh, you know, I, I kind of like that. You know, Jack's like when she makes that bringing up baby analogy, he's like. No, that that doesn't make any sense, which mm-hmm. I kind of like this. So it's kind of showing she doesn't know as much as she thinks she does, or she's just so warped she doesn't get it. Right. But, the the guy, the, again, the guys in the cocaine deal, you know. That one was way, I'm like, That was what? over no. the top yeah. with that one. But, yeah, it's it's a, it's a minor thing, but, it you know, I think I'd rather have kept it to just, like, 
and there's a storyline that's coming up. Several issues down the line that involve several big DC characters. I don't know if you remember it, but they get into a discussion of Woody Allen movies, mm-hmm. and everybody's got a Woody Allen movie, you know, which I can kind of see that more. Well, with Woody Allen, yes, that's especially more... for that time frame. Yeah, but musicals and cocaine dealers, really? Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. So, oh, okay, one more gripe, and that I mean, overall, I like this issue, but Mist has the gun pointed at Jack on the first page. The other panels throughout it, this long discussion, she never has it pointing at him again. I think it would have, I think it would have made Jack look more competent, and it also would have added a little more action to the story if he had at least attempted to like knock her out or something. I disagree. Do this you? is a point where I disagree with you. Okay. Um, that that's the whole point. He is in, and and about this, Mist has a point. Nash has a point. They are both in their beginning stages. He's trying to get this all figured out. He has just been through. He has been drugged. Mm-hmm. Other things happened to him. Yeah. Which, you know. But anyway. Yeah, right. He's been through a huge battle. He's, you know, he's taking stock of what she has to say. She's. He's trying to figure out, okay, what am I doing here? And it, to me, it makes perfect sense. He's trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. I, I completely disagree. I'm sorry. I think... I think what the the deal is is that this is the response. This is the human response that Jack has in the book. I'm expecting the superhero response. But again, yeah. at this point, yeah. this makes sense for him. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not saying it doesn't, but it just at the same. I think it would have helped, and it might just be more of a fault of of Harris not, you know, not maybe Robinson told him don't have him, you know, have her put the gun down to her side at some point. I don't know, you know, you don't know who just said what. Mm-hmm. But if that was Harris just doing it on his own, I think he kind of weakened the the standoff to a point by having her not keep the gun on him. Because I don't think at this point she's the type that I mean, she's been so well prepared throughout this, I don't think she'd put her guard down like that cuz Jack could have, you know, tried to take the gun from her or grab his cosmic rod and blast her or something. And one thing, and I think we need to realize this, you know, she's there waiting for them, him at the end. Yeah. And Jack's like, oh, you know, I don't get to go free. And she's like, well, duh, I'm a bad girl. You know, I'm not going to keep my word. But then this is the part that bothers me. You know, Jack says, okay, I will fight you. You'll fight me if you'll keep my father out of it. And she's like, I agree. Well, bad girls don't keep their word. Girl. Yeah. Well, but she does keep her word. <laughs> but. But, yeah. You know. Without spoiling ahead too much. But, uh, yeah. You know, one thing I do like about it is that the Mist has a World War One medal. Mm-hmm. I mean, that to show that, you know, this guy's a, you know, super villain. He's killed all these people. But at some point, there was some redeeming qualities to him. You know, that fleshed him out. I'm but, sorry. I disagree with this, too. Why? why? A lot of times, people that are in war, if they already have tendencies toward psychopath, being a psychopath and stuff like that, that's able. They're able to give in to their bloodlust. You don't know what he got an award for. Did well, he go true. in and kill a nest of thirty people in a fit of bloodlust? No, yeah, you true. know. I mean, that to me, that well, the fact that I think the fact that he has a medal kind of says that he didn't do something like that. I disagree again. 
Well, it, it might be. I'm sorry, but, you know. You can disagree. I don't care. You ain't got to apologize for disagreeing with me. We're just talking about it. I don't care if you disagree with me or not. I mean, <laughs> it, it's one of those things. He, and to go farther into this, to go, for, excuse me, to go further into this, you know, if he was recognized, depending on what the incident was that he got the honor for, that he got the medal for, mm-hmm. if he was recognized for killing a bunch of people, then did that feed into and make it okay in his head? Okay, if it's okay and I got a medal for doing it in wartime, who's to say I'm not going to, it's not okay in peacetime? Well, I don't, they don't give awards for like number of people you killed, you know. I mean, medals, I'm, I'm saying. I know what you mean, but if he, he could have, whether it was uh, an act of valor or not, he could have connected, okay, when I did this great thing, they they told me I did, I, to do it, I had to kill 20, 30 people. Mm-hmm. I could see that. Now, that I could see. But what my point was, was in general, we think Sorry, of... Sorry, I just... In, in general, we think of somebody that gets a medal as being a hero, mm-hmm. right? And especially, you know, they usually go above and beyond. They, they, they've sacrificed their own safety for their men, something like that, uh, you know, or for their country. So he did that. Well, somebody recognized him doing that, so there was. See, I wish that they, if they want to take the angle of that, yeah, they should have had just a little one sentence thing about what it was for. Well, just wait; they might later. I I don't remember exactly, but I do remember this comes up again. I don't remember. I I know when it comes up again. I don't remember the details of it. So let's just wait. And, we'll put a pin in it. Wait and see. <laughs> So. Uh, and again, you know, I might be completely going out of left field. I'm playing devil's advocate and saying yeah. this might be the other side of it. But I, but I, but I like the fact that oh, because did, you know. good men go bad, you know. True. And I mean, he might never been a good good man, but he might have just, you know, done one good thing. Well, and, and he did one good thing at an extremely important moment in time in his life that he did that one good thing, and he was rewarded for it. And that was the one thing he did in his life that was something good. And everything else was evil, you know. Well, it also goes to show that you can have somebody, you know, you have, say, 100% evil. But out of that 100%, you might have 2% that's just a glimmer of hope of good, you know. Like Superman always says, there's good in everybody. Right. Well, it's like... You know, in like I'm thinking, you know, it's World War Two except except World War One, but like in the Captain America Batman Captain America crossover that John Byrne did, the Joker's like, you know, I'm not it, it's it's similar to the, the scene in the Rocketeer with the gangsters. They're like, I'm not working for Nazis and they yeah. you know, they turn tables on the Nazis, you know. It's like so I mean that you know, that that was obviously a less crazy joker than we've got nowadays. But in, in like Paul Servino's character in, in The Rocketeer, it's like, you know, they're, they're bad men, but they do that one good thing. You know, that's kind of yeah, what I'm thinking. Or they have a certain code. Right, right, right. So, we boy, we beat that subject to death. But uh, the vignettes at the end that catch up with everyone is a nice way to wrap this up, especially mm-hmm. since we saw everybody throughout the storyline, you know. Right, and it says, okay, now they're doing this. Now they're doing this. Yeah, so, so. that was nice. Uh, overall, this is a... A strong storyline. It's it's similar to the first arc. That's the point. It's basically the mist saying, "I can do this. I'm I'm going to be just like my dad, and I'm going to, you know, have this reign of terror hit the city, and and you know, and all this is going on. Also, while she's actually looking for something, she's 
I mean, she is so wanting her dad's approval, her mm-hmm. father's approval. You know, that's the whole point. I mean, she says she's doing this to get better, to fight Jack. She's got daddy issues. A little bit. <laughs> a lot of bit, yeah. <laughs> so, needless to say, this story will have major repercussions throughout the series. And I will say, notice she says she's going to see Jack in 11 months. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, we won't. <laughs> Let's not spoil ahead too much. But yeah. No, but I'm just saying. So, you got anything else? I'm good, except, you know, I just, you know, I was just presenting a different viewpoint on that. Oh, that's fine. So. That's fine. That's what we're, if, if it was you and me having the exact same viewpoint for everything, that'd be kind of boring. You know, why I'd just sit here and talk to myself, you know, or mm. something, or you could. So, uh, well, that'll wrap it up for this one. Next time, we're not going to give any details, but it is our 50th episode. So it's a big, you know, episode 50. It's going to have a gold foil cover. Embossed. Embossed, die cut. uh, Holographic. Holographic. (laughs) All that stuff. There's going to be 50 variant covers. No, no, there's not. But but join us for that. We've got, I think we've got a a great episode planned for you. If all goes according to plan, I think it's going to be a whole lot of fun. I think uh, I think everybody will get a kick out of it. So join us then, and we'll see you. Bye. Bye. Supermates is a Franklin and Franklin production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises Worldwide. And he's a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The characters and properties mentioned in this show are copyright their respective holders. Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their holders and no infringement is implied. So please don't sue my mommy and daddy. Emails can be sent to supermatespodcast at gmail.com. Comments can be left at supermatescomic.blogspot.com or by visiting fireandwaterpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook by searching for Supermates and FW Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter by using the hashtag FW Podcast. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast.